Hello and welcome once more to the Oplane podcast where I interview the movers and shakers of the aviation industry and most particularly those that are pushing the borders of technological innovation. But first of all, let me repeat my usual promotional line to remind you that you can find all the preceding episodes of this podcast as well as many other aviation stories on oplane.tv. That's a dot TV. So, go visit after you finish listening to this podcast episode. Today's guest is Neil Claffley, founder and CEO of Faradair, a startup based in the UK that is working on an aircraft that he expects will transform regional air mobility for both passengers and cargo. Of course, there's a number of entrepreneurs out there working on similar concepts in the same market segment of up to 19 seats, but Faradair has a number of interesting things going for it. Besides its rather original configuration with a staggered triple box wing, we will soon see what this means, and its STOL capabilities, so short takeoff and landing, that will allow it to land, for example, on the deck of the Royal Navy's newest aircraft carriers, Perhaps what I found most interesting about the Biha is the business model that Neil has in mind for this aircraft type, which involves not only developing and building the aircraft, but also operating a fleet of hundreds of them by the end of this decade. But best is that we hear it all directly from Neil. So let me welcome him to the podcast. Hi, Neil. How are you? Miguel, a pleasure. Uh, I would be better if we weren't under lockdown, but this, these are the things that we have to deal with right now. But uh, yeah, we're very good, actually. Yes, uh, actually, I think uh, all of us are finding time now to, to, to focus on, on the projects we've been working on for, for quite some time. Uh, in your case, you, you've been pioneering the green aviation uh, technology for quite some time. We're going to talk about the, the project that you been leading already for a few years, Faradair, to mm -hmm. build an 18-seater aircraft for um, regional flights. I don't know if that's the right word. You define it as regional commuting or... Regional air mobility. I mean, okay. I think regional air mobility wraps it up as a, a fairly concise way. So mm -hmm. Very good. So, like with every other guest, and I'm just going to start by asking you to introduce yourself and, and tell us a bit more about your background. You're based in, in the UK. And from what I read about you, your family has been involved in the aeronautical business for already more than a generation, let's say. For sure. Yeah, my, my name is Neil Cloughley. I founded Faraday in 2014. Um, that is after about 15 years in the commercial aircraft market. So I've, I've been in and around most commercial aviation assets, uh, owned, leased, managed, sold, bought, um, pretty much every asset that's out there. And, and it's an environment which I dearly love. As you say, there is a, a fa uh, family background and a legacy, if you like. Uh, my father was uh, in early days pioneering the urban, well, it's the unmanned air vehicle. I keep getting confused now between urban air mobility and unmanned. So the unmanned air vehicle market back in the day, uh, which uh, we now call UAVs, uh, military-sized uh, unmanned platforms, and those were what he was developing. We've taken a lot of the engineering principles and the ideas behind some of the joint-wing technology that he was working on at the time to now come up with a new aircraft platform for the new technologies of today and for sustainable aviation, which is what we now call the BIHA. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how we come to be here. 
Yeah, the, the BHAG, which is, stands for Bioelectric Hybrid Aircraft. Right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. What yeah. can you tell us about this project? It's, um, as I said, an 18-seater. Mm -hmm. And to people that see it for the first time, I don't know if you have already built some scale models, some prototype, but I've seen the yeah. renderings and it's a very eye-catching design with um, a wing that is not a conventional wing, it's, it's a sort of a three-piece wing. Um, you can mm -hmm. maybe tell us a bit more now about the, the principles that underpin this design. Yeah, so tell us a bit more about this Viha concept that you are working on. So as I just mentioned, we obviously have a family background that worked with this type of technology in the past. So the background to the business came from a lot of principles that were carried out years ago by my father's company, where basically there was a requirement for the US Navy in the mid-80s the mid for their mid-range program. What they were looking for was significant payload increase on their UAVs, but also the ability to potentially recover it more traditionally. At the time, they were catching UAVs in nets. Captains didn't like unmanned missiles effectively flying at the back of their boats, uh, ships. And so they decided that wouldn't it be better if there was an ability to create a new type of UAV. So a lot of the technology idea behind joined wing was the ability to create that lift profile that would give the mission capability and recover in a very, very short space, i.e. a helicopter landing deck. So that was the ethos behind it. So fast forward to today, looking at the challenges that we face, looking at the fact that we are looking to solve three core fundamental problems. Number one is cost of operations. We need to solve that in order to increase our regional air mobility capability. Number two, it is noise. Noise is critical now. doesn't matter where you go. doesn't matter whether you're operating Concorde, the Red Arrows, your local barnstormers, or your private aviation aircraft out of a local airfield. Somebody somewhere will object to the noise. It just seems to be a standard fare now across the world, especially when it comes near the urban environment. Especially in England. Especially huh? in England. Um, <laughs> so, um, I mean, bizarrely, we had a court case here. I think it was at an airfield that was, has been around for 100 years, has trained uh, the original Army Air Corps, Flying Corps, and a couple came, bought a house on the boundary of the airfield, renovated it, uh, lost the house sale because people who turned up to see it went, oh, we can hear these airplanes. Uh, is that constant? And they said, well, yes. Lost the house sale because it was two celebrities who were looking to buy this house. And as a result, they took the airfield to court and they won. They won the fact that it was a noise nuisance and they are now restricted to, I think, about half an hour of hover flight of helicopter training as a result. And you're thinking, hang on a minute. You moved onto the edge of an airfield that's been there for 100 years, and now they have to adapt to you? <laughs> it's bizarre. It's crazy. Anyway, that is the world that we live in now. We live in a world where basically um, we have got an awful lot of people who do like to complain about things. Um, but equally, at the same time, you don't want to be living in an environment where you have noise intrusion of air assets coming in at the back of your garden morning, noon, and night. I mean, nobody, nobody should have to put up with that. Um, so it really has become quite the hot subject. So we have to solve that. First and foremost, I mean, there's, there's no two ways about that. And then, of course, the big one at the moment is sustainability. We have seen with COVID this great big push for cleaner, greener, quieter uh, on our roads, in our skies. Uh, and it's something we just have to do. The fact of the matter is our population boom across the whole of the planet is getting bigger and bigger. We are consuming more and more resources. And therefore, as a result, we are having less, less capability to fight that which we put into the environment. 
as human beings, we've got to do a lot better job. We really do. Um, we're destroying the planet currently. You can look at the amount of plastics in the oceans. You can look at what we're putting into our atmosphere. We have to do a much better job. So it's clear that all future investments and all opportunities will be focused more to a greener industrial future. And that is right and proper. So how does that relate to what we designed? Well, those are your core problems which tell you what you need to solve. So if we know that existing assets today simply are not doing the job. So for example, yes, a standard wing and tube design cannot fly into London City Airport tonight at 12 o'clock at midnight. It's not permitted. Why is it not permitted? It's not permitted because there's a noise abatement order. Uh, and this is half of the problem, is, is if you cannot operate your existing assets because of noise, you are reducing your economic return opportunity. And this comes back to the first point, which is cost of operations. Can you make an economic viable case for your asset? If your asset costs X to produce, it costs Y to certify, and it costs, let's say, A to operate, all of those costs have got to come together to a point that you can make an economic return. And if you are not able to make an economic return as a manufacturer or as an airline or as an operator, you go bust. It's that simple. Now, we've seen lots of regional airlines that have tried to use assets that don't work for routes. Um, classic example, we've seen lots of British Midland go bust trying to use ERJ 145 jets, 50-seat regional jet, and averaging an 18-passenger headcount. That's not sustainable. You cannot operate out of airports like Heathrow on that sort of basis and expect to survive. You just can't. Mm -hmm. So there are many things where we look at certain routes of two hours in length, uh, where we see land-based transport still dominating. Well, how and why is that possible? We're in 2021 now, and we've got two hours outside. And I'll use London, forgive me for our international people who are listening to us. I use it as an example because I know it's easy yeah. to relate to. No, but actually, I could use England is full of these city pairs that are far enough, that are not convenient to travel by land, but they are not, far, they are not too far that, that you justify the use of a, of a large jet. So, exactly. I mean, that's the key yeah. thing. I mean, places yeah. like Cheltenham to London, two yeah. hours. Now, yeah. most people would find it astonishing to realize that that's less on the train, that journey is about an hour and three quarters, hour and a half. If you went there tomorrow morning at peak time, you would be paying over 200 pounds for a return ticket to do a journey, which is an hour and three quarters each way. Yeah, I was looking for, I was looking once uh, from London to go for a day trip or weekend trip to Bristol, which is a mm -hmm. city I haven't visited yet. And I was shocked to learn about the, the price of the ticket. It cost it's fierce. It cost me like three fierce. times more expensive. It was three times more expensive than flying to to Paris or to to Absolutely. Or to <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you can fly fourteen ninety nine with the likes of the low cost carriers to Rome or wherever, it is bizarre. Um, but it, what it also does, it highlights it highlights where we're failing right now. It highlights how the regional model really has not caught up to the fact that there is opportunity and there is a social mobility shift opportunity, which is people want to necessarily commute to the best places of work. And the best places of work with the best salaries are going to be the major cities. But a lot of people don't actually want to live in those major cities. They want to live further out where the quality of education may be better, quality of lifestyle, cost of lifestyle is less. But of course, commuting is a major pain. So hence why studies have shown that a lot of people spend over half of their salary every month to pay rent 
to live in the city that they work in so that they don't have to commute. Well, I mean, again, that's bizarre. I mean, really, are we honestly at that point when the Wright brothers first flew in, in the early 1900s and we still now cannot use aircraft as a, a common form of commuter transport? Well, the select few can, but the ordinary citizen, the average person, they can't. So this really was part of the driving factor of what we're doing. So we came up with an idea where let's look at solving those problems. So the fact that we need to carry lots of people, why do we need to carry lots of people? By lots of people, we mean sort of 18 people, and I'll explain that in a reason in, in more detail in a second. But the class of aircraft that we're building is under the part 23 category rules. The moment you go to part 25 and you start going to larger aircraft, you are talking tens of billions of dollars to create a new aircraft. We don't have that capability. We don't have that firepower right now. And it would be quite frankly ridiculous to be going straight for a part 25 aircraft. Um, it makes far more sense with these new technologies to start smaller, prove the technologies and solve the problems that we currently are not dealing with. And if we can do that, then great. So we looked at that and we thought, well, okay, so up to 18 seats, 18, 19 seat environment is great. Uh, we will also need that asset to work not only just on passenger, but also in a cargo configuration. Uh, and then there are a range of missions and capabilities that we know that we want to do that we looked at in the past for the government non-civilian operations, but also now firefighting. Firefighting is a big one for us because we think that whilst it's great that everybody is moving to electric vehicles and sustainability and everything else, the fact that so much pollutant is put into our atmosphere on a yearly basis now that's getting worse. On every continent, we're seeing forest fires expanding. US, Australasia, Asia, Europe. Forest fires are becoming a real problem. Well, that is fossil fuel emissions going straight into the atmosphere. Now, if we can help to try and fight some of that, then the amount of vehicles it would require to equal what you can put out simply by putting out flames um, is huge. But again, I'll come on to that in a little bit more detail. Let's come back to the aircraft and why we did what we did. Yeah. So, is, so this, we, is this aircraft, the, the Biha, um, you've been working on it since 2014. Mm -hmm. And let's start maybe by uh, describing it a little bit. Uh, I know it's, it's difficult to describe here. <laughs> when a triple about, box wing. Triple yeah. box wing is the best I'm way gonna, to describe I'm going to post some, some pictures in mm. the show notes so that people can get an idea. I mean, you've been publishing some some interesting um, videos on YouTube and, and, of course, your website as well. But it's basically, yeah, it, it's um, I'm gonna try to describe it. It's it, it's about the size of what of a of a, a Q200 or uh, no? If you think of something like a Jetstream 31, Jetstream 41, okay. it's about that sort of size. And it has this very peculiar wing, which is basically it's it's like three wings stacked one on top of each other. I know it's not technically maybe the right way to describe it, but staggered. It's a staggered triple staggered. box wing. Uh huh. Yeah. And then it, it's got this sort of propeller at the at the bottom at the at the, at the rear of the the, of prop the aircraft. Fan. Yes. Two prop fans, contra-rotating yeah. prop fans. So I'll walk you through the sort of concept design of what mm -hmm. we did. When we first started, we took this wing configuration to Cranfield University. Um, because, let's face it, if it was complete nonsense, then it's better to find out earlier than later. So we took it to them. They looked at it and first went, yeah, we kind of left three wings 100 years ago back in the sort of First World War period. Why, why are we going down that path again? And I said, well... Hear out the rationale. What we want to do is have an incredibly high lift profile aircraft in an incredibly compact footprint 
that can take off and land in a very, very short space, but carry a very, very heavy payload. It doesn't have to go super high. It doesn't have to go super far. It doesn't have to go super quick. It has to simply go from point A to point B and do it very simply with as much payload as possible. And we'll explain the reasons for that later. Right, okay. So they looked at the wing configuration. They ran it against eight different configurations in different staggers and different uh, form. And they came back and said, hmm, wow, it actually works. Now, I knew it worked because we'd worked on this type of thing about 30 years ago, and we knew that the core concept of the joined wing would work. What we did was innovate slightly in terms of the box wing, of making a triple box wing, uh, and that's where we get the lift profile. So what we effectively have is a lift profile that if you pull angle of attack, the lift profile rolls backwards. So when it's no longer lifting, as a single wing would do, it would stall. But now you've got still some lift on the mid wing, and you have more lift on the bottom wing, the aircraft is now getting a profile where it won't actually stall. What will happen is when you get to that point of stall, the aircraft pushes its nose over and it simply carries on. So that is from a safety redundancy perspective, great. But it's the lift profile in a compact footprint that's the biggest bit. Now, why is that important? It's important because we know that the technologies available today, like battery technology, et cetera, are going to be heavier. And they're going to be heavy for some time. So in order for us to do the mission that existing assets do, we are going to have to carry more. But the beautiful thing about new technologies in terms of composites and materials is we're able to generate a lot more strength and much more lightweight materials now than we were able to do in the past, which means that we can counteract some of that by the choice of materials you use for the aircraft. But we have to be cognizant of the fact that the technology simply isn't there yet or the power density isn't there yet, we don't feel, to do fully electric operations of this size. That's why you, so, uh, it's a hybrid. So it's a hybrid. You combine, so, uh, uh, you combine a fuel engine with uh, two electric motors. Yes, yeah, so right. basically we have a turbo generator, an APU effectively, um, that will run on sustainable aviation fuel, or it can run Jet A. Uh, and again, this is part of the equation of a staggered process to bringing in sustainable aviation. If you look at pure electric or if you look at pure hydrogen, you are going to have to invest in a huge amount of infrastructure in order to make that viable. Now, if we take the US as an example, where there are 5,000 odd airfields, of which about 500 have scheduled services, they don't have those scheduled services in 4,500 of those airfields with existing asset technology today. So if anybody believes that we're going to suddenly crack this nut by suddenly having all of those 4,500 airfields have to now spend a huge amount of money to bring in new infrastructure, it's not viable. It is simply not attainable at this moment in time. So that means it makes sense for you to be able to use existing infrastructure, existing flight corridor networks, existing certificated products in terms of turbines, etc. Yes, you can use sustainable aviation fuel to make use of those electric motors because there is a huge amount of efficiency that can be gained by using the electric motor, and I'll explain that. If you imagine how an APU works, basically the APU is a power generator. Now, unlike an engine on an aircraft that has to throttle up and throttle down and throttle up and throttle down, it's trying to propel that great big mass of an airplane off down the runway to give it enough speed to lift off the deck. That's what a main engine has to do. With a generator, it has to turn on to the optimum RPM to generate the power, and that's all it has to do. It just simply has to turn on, which means its maintenance cycle is lower, which means lower cost for maintenance. It means that the fuel burn is less than would be a, compared to a regular jet engine. 
So what you're doing is you're creating power that you can then use in something that uses the propulsion to propel you down the runway, fly you through the sky, etc. So therefore, the electric motor, with its minimalist moving parts, with the fact that you might have a 30,000-hour inspection rather than a typical 3,000-hour TBO on a hot section inspection on a regular engine, you're now looking at cost savings. You're looking at cost savings over existing assets. And why is that important? Let's go back to the point I made about cost of operations. The bigger dents we can put into the cost of operations, the more economically viable your services. So that's why we think hybrid is the way forward right now, because we get all the torque benefit of those twin electric motors working in contratation. Now, to raise your point about the back end of the aircraft, the ducted fan. It's a ducted prop fan in two of them in contratation. Why did we do that? If you want to solve the, no the noise problem, you've got to go ducted. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. If you go open prop architecture, you cannot solve the noise problem. You just simply can't because once that prop tip gets up to close to the speed of sound, you are creating noise. We've been trying it with helicopters, with turboprop aircraft, with everything else. Open prop architecture has a noise footprint that you cannot get beneath. With a ducted fan, you can. If you look at what Airbus demonstrated with the E-Fan, that was an incredibly quiet little aeroplane. I mean, you could have a conversation. I remember being at Paris having a conversation with colleagues, and we didn't even realize the aeroplane was up flying behind us. It was that quiet. What that proved is that that ducted fan technology, the ability to encase the fan, made a lot of sense from a noise reduction perspective. But, of course, that has some cost to it. The cost is the fact that if you want to go faster than 220 knots, Studies have proven, University of Milan and NASA and various other places, that if you want to go fast, a ducted fan acts like a giant parachute. So once you start going beyond 220 knots, you've got a parachute there that's slowing you down and dragging you down. So therefore, it's not good for high speed. But if that's not a problem, which it isn't for us, we're sort of looking at a situation where we take a target of something like the CH-47 Chinook. The Chinook helicopter, if we can do a better payload than the Chinook, be cheaper to acquire, cheaper to operate, quieter, uh, more efficient uh, in terms of the mission. Granted, we're not going to land on the side of a mountain like a Chinook can, but if we could land on the dirt road that goes up to the mountain, we can end up doing sort of 95% of the mission of that type of helicopter, fly faster, be quieter, less fuel burn, et cetera, et cetera, less maintenance costs, less risk from a safety perspective as well. Mm -hmm. um, you're now starting to create an asset that actually makes sense in a regional basis. And let's look at the aircraft that have come and gone. If you look at things like the Beechcraft Starship, beautiful airplane of its time, not around, just was too early, I think. You look at the F-117 Stealth Fighter, fantastic technology piece of kit, stunning, beautiful, pointy, fast, no longer in service because the moment it became radar visible, it was now just a very, very expensive fighter jet. Therefore, no need for it. So what we're talking about is effectively the next incarnation of the Cessna caravan. The Cessna caravan has been going for 50 years. Now, incredibly, you would take most people, including the likes of AOPA, who said it in passing an article, the Cessna caravan is a, a draggy, boxy, not really a very attractive-looking airplane. But guess what? It's been achieving orders for over 50 years, and it's still getting orders today. And the reason being is because it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's a utility workhorse. So that was the, the, the goal, effectively, the motivator. 
So we realized that a ducted fan would also limit our speed. Therefore, we had a bit more freedom with the design on the drag profile. We could afford to be a bit draggy. One question. Um, so you have this ducted fan, the rear end of the aircraft, mm -hmm. this circular uh, shape at the, at the rear end. But yep. where exactly the, these engines are located? In, in so the basically, the two electric motors sit in the back. Okay. So they sit in controtation. So the two prop fans sit face-to-face -face with the two electric motors attached to each fan. Mm -hmm. Those two electric motors are powered by the turbine, which is effectively sitting in the position at the back of the aircraft that the ordinary, something like a turboprop would have sat if it was connected to a regular pusher configuration of fan. So mm -hmm. the turbo generator is in the back. The electric motors are in the back. And basically, all that's happening is the turbo generator is supplying the power for the two electric motors. But also, we incorporate electric motors in our landing gear. Because again, I find it quite frankly bizarre that in this modern age, we have all of our aircraft sitting at main commercial airports being dragged around by diesel tugs. Hmm. Ridiculous. Those should all be electric. The fact that we should be able to incorporate electric motors into our landing gear now, I mean, it was an idea I saw with a, a company back in 2005 that were putting it forward for commercial jets at the time. And it makes a ton of sense. The ability for you to move around on your own ground power, on your effectively your own electric motors without having to use your propulsion uh, fan and get that all spinning up, that makes a ton of sense. The side benefit of that is that you get additional propulsion off down the runway. So you get that Tesla effect of the landing gear pushing you in addition to the prop fans behind you pushing you, which means you get extremely good acceleration in order to get into the air quickly, which with a high lift profile wing configuration happens very, very quickly. So what we have ended up with is an aircraft that basically is targeting a payload of five tons, and it can take off and land in 300 meters. Those are the numbers that we're gunning for. And it's a hard number because that is the length of our new aircraft carriers. And our aircraft is very much targeted to be able to do logistical supply to our new aircraft carriers. If we couldn't hit that target, um, yeah, the aircraft are going swimming every time they try and take off. So The Royal Navy aircraft carrier. Yeah, Royal Navy, British Royal Navy. Queen New but the Queen Elizabeth class carriers, and but I, I'm just using it as one example. The uh -huh. same would apply that if you're trying to operate into a little tiny airfield, or if you're going into a logistics center for a major carrier, the Amazons, the FedExes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, if you're going to land in one of their facilities, having a very very small runway requirement in order to then load up your LD3 containers. So we then knew going back to the design that we would have to have the ability to go from passenger to cargo. So the fact that the seats would be six, six, and six. So the reason why we've gone for 18 seats rather than an ounce 19 seat, which is the, the max class for the commuter category in part 23, is simply efficiency in terms of the seating. We need to be able to pull that seating out in about 15 minutes, which means three pallets of six, six, and six. Those three pallets of seats will be replaced by three LD3 containers, standard industrial aerospace size containers, which means that when those bigger aircraft come into the main cargo hubs, they can unload into the LD3 containers. Those containers are then put into aircraft like ours and dispersed around to airfields around countrysides throughout the world. And you could have so, a mix configuration as well? So you have you could potentially. You, put, you could, but I mean, we think that really it makes more sense to be operating the aircraft in its passenger operation first and then in its cargo operation. So to give you an example of a daily forecast of how we expect an aircraft like this to be used, you'd have commuter flights in the morning where you'd have people who regularly fly every day in the morning and in the evening, okay? So that cost base is basically where you're getting a lot of your costs for the day covered. 
Then during the daytime, you can convert the aircraft to use it either for cargo, or you could be using it for private charter, in which case we can switch out the six, six, and six seats for captain's chairs and have a nine seat configuration or 10 seat configuration, have something that's a little bit more luxurious for the corporate charter market for them to use during the day, or even uh, government POS flights. So if you've got government sponsored flights that need to go between regions because they want to support economic regeneration of those regions, they may pay for those flights to move people between those areas. That can be done during daytime. You could do pilot training with the aircraft during daytime. And then in the evening, once you've got your commuters back, you unload the seats, you now use the aircraft as a freighter overnight. We're seeing the greater rise of online demand for goods and services, which means more packages. We're seeing Amazon's fleet rising to 76, I think, this coming year. And it's grown phenomenally in the last couple of years. And that is because the amount of online demand is increasing. As people throughout the world, in places like India and China and all throughout the world, are getting higher status in terms of wealth, they are online. They are buying goods. They want to fly. They want to travel. Same in Africa. People are wanting to move between countries, and they're wanting to now join the sort of corporate migrationary flight now that the aviation networks have created. But in order to make those international hops, how do we now bring people from some of those more remote regions to those hub airports to make those hops? Well, an aircraft like ours. And that is the idea behind it. We're basically looking at covering a range of capabilities with a proven utility workhorse model. And that's what we've done with the Bihar as a design. That's, that's why she looks the way she does. In practical terms, um, how you plan to, to make it a tangible reality? I mean, you, you're a startup company, right? Um, mm-hmm. This type of project, I guess, it requires uh, a, a significant capital investment. I read you've got some partners. But apart from that, how are you funded? Um, where are you now, basically, when it comes to, to making this a tangible reality? And what are the next milestones? What are the next steps? Everything has been done very much bootstrapped and with angel investors. And I'm hugely and eternally thankful for those who have backed us in the last six years. Uh, it has been a really tough journey. There have been an awful lot of people who sit there and go, no, I don't think it's going to be reality. I don't think it's going to work. I don't believe in it, blah, blah, blah. The fact is we're still here. There's an awful lot of people who haven't. There's an awful lot of people who've now realized that some of the dreams and ideas that people have put forward are simply not viable with the technologies that they're proposing. Whereas what we're proposing is actually a fairly sensible platform. It's a standard airplane. It is something that has got redundancy. It's something that doesn't need infrastructure spend. It's got something that can use existing air corridor networks. It's a traditional aircraft from that sense. We're using proven certified parts. So this turbine generator is a certified generator. The fact that the electric motors will be certified by the time our prototype comes to the skies in 2024 means that we're putting as many certified approved parts on this airplane as possible. That limits the amount of risk from the regulator's perspective. They're but you're right. The, the engines, are they your design or you? No, no, no. So this, this, is, this is the point. This is what I was about to say in terms of how you bring this all together. So you can get to a certain point on a certain level of investment where you come up with the basic, you prove the design, you fly some models, you get to a point. We got to that point, uh, and last year, we basically were either going to have to stay in the UK uh, and struggle in the financial environment that we were finding, or we were going to go to the US. COVID intervened in that, and we ended up with an offer, which we couldn't believe, which was fantastic, which is with the Imperial War Museum at Duxford and Gondolin Keys College. 
we're basically working together now. Uh, our core HQ site is now the historic Duxford Airfield location, right yeah. in the Cambridge Tech Corridor. And um, that is where we're going to build our prototype aircraft. So mm -hmm. they've committed to the prototype hang that's going to be built there. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, in order to fine tune the design, you've got to have a number of the core elements sorted out. So, for example, what turbine generator are you going to use? What electric motors are you going to use? What are the avionics? Who are the guys who are going to help you through that regulatory process? Who are the guys who've been involved in making a hybrid powertrain work? So that's what we then set about doing. So what we've now got is basically Honeywell as uh, our partner on our avionics and the turbine generator, one of the world's largest aerospace primes. To yeah. secure them as a partner is a massive boost for our program, and we're delighted to be working with Honeywell. Then we looked at the electric motors. And the fact of the matter is, the company that's flying the most amount of hours right now on their electric motors is Magnix. Magnix have been proven that their engine works. They're getting the flight time on it. And more importantly, it's the right size for what we needed. So that is a 750 horsepower electric motor, 560 odd kilowatts, the Magni 500. They've got a Magni drive system as well, which we'll incorporate. So we'll have two of their motors in our aircraft. And then you look at how do you make that all talk? Well, Cambridge Consultants uh, are a very well-known large technology engineering research company, about one of the best in the world, offices throughout the world. They have recently just completed a hybrid propulsion system for a high-altitude UAV. So all the architecture and the principle is stuff that these guys know like the back of their hands now. Involving them in the process to make the turbo generator talk to the electric motors was for us a no-brainer. Uh, it made an awful lot of sense. And then when we bring Nova Systems in, we're bringing them in at this stage right now so that as we now get into the structural engineering analysis of the aircraft, they are involving the regulator as well. They're looking at all the things that we're going to have to do from a regulatory standpoint to make sure that by the time the prototype comes to the ramp, all the boxes have been ticked, rather than the mistake that many people make, which is to build an aircraft, put it on the ramp in front of the regulator, and they go, well, that's nice, that's pretty. Now go away for three years and change this, 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 and this. We can't afford to do that. So getting those partners on board is essential for us to enable us to tweak the design now to fit around those electric motors, around the avionics package, around the turbine generator, et cetera. These are the core main components. And from that, we've now got the engineering firepower that we need to give confidence to the investors that this is what we're able to do. We have now got the right people on board. But we went one step further than that. And in our announcement before Christmas, what we were stating is we are now making a commitment to build 300 hybrid electric aircraft by 2030, and we're going to deploy them in the world's largest proof of concept demonstration across the world, where we will deploy at least 150 of those aircraft in firefighting configuration. And we will then, the next largest group will be regional air mobility configuration, dedicated freighters third, and special missions versions in the fourth place. That portfolio will be split, and those aircraft will be put out in deployment. Now, we're doing that in a model very much similar to SpaceX, and that's where the idea came from. If you think about SpaceX, 18 years ago, they go to companies and institutions like NASA, and they say, we're going to build rockets and take people to space. And a lot of people looked at them and went, who are you to do this? You can't do this better than we've been doing for decades. But he insisted that he could. But the only reason he could do what he could do is to go and create a hardware, I mean he by Elon Musk, of course, is to create the hardware and the Falcon 9 rocket. That reusable rocket technology is a hardware creation of theirs 
that enables their business model. So basically, they are a service delivery provider. They deliver crates, boxes, satellites, people into space. The method of doing that is the Falcon 9. So actually, they're a service delivery company, not a technology hardware company. So, but even though they make their own terms. So we're doing the same with the Bihar. We will fly this aircraft in operations as a service, or we will dry lease it to select customers for them to operate. But effectively, we will own the portfolio of those 300 aircraft going forward in that demonstration trial. Okay, interesting. So rather than selling them by, by the piece, you are going to have the fleet, and you're going to deploy it on demand to people that might need the services. Correct. Well, interesting. It, it's but, a contracted model. And basically, it's a model that we used to do for years in the aircraft finance market. I mean, all of my colleagues that I work with, the environment, and we're already now talking to aircraft finance companies about financing that portfolio. So yes, you're right. This is a very expensive uh, capability. But if you can finance that portfolio of assets, because basically all of the aircraft finance companies now are starting to realize that sustainability is a major goal for the future. The fact that looking at COVID and what it's done to the commercial aircraft fleet values, the fact that many lessors have been looking at 0.5% lease rate factors, Models that are just not sustainable, you cannot sustain that long term, they are now starting to look at how they broaden their portfolios. So you've seen some start looking at helicopters, you've seen some start looking at government operations, you've seen some lessors doing things like the air tanker contract for the Royal Air Force. Private corporations flying missions for governments and doing things where they have to be now starting to think outside the box. They've got to have a wider portfolio net, which is exactly what we're doing. We're creating a portfolio of aircraft of which those will be spread across four sectors and they will de be deployed across the world. That not only gives you that resilience in your portfolio, it gives you a very, very interesting revenue model as well. What sort of investment are we talking about? Are we talking about 300 aircraft, 300 airframes, plus the, all the work to, mm -hmm. to finish the development? Absolutely. And, this is, a, this is over a billion them. dollar exercise. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to realize that you've got to be getting funds in of over a billion dollars. Yeah. Now, yeah. what we've done is in our cost calculations, we funded the first 60 aircraft of the production run as part of our cost evaluations in our financing discussions right now. So, so we, we are so basically secure, in talks. So you have secure financing for 60 units of this? No, no, no. No, we're, this is what we're saying. We're having discussions at the moment. Okay. Where basically, we're breaking out of that 300 aircraft portfolio the uh -huh. first 60 aircraft of the production run are part of the financing package that we're now discussing. Okay. And that is basically a billion dollar financing package. Mm -hmm. So it's a major sum of money. We are quite well aware of what we've got to do in the short term. So now that breaks down into very short term immediate goal of expanding the engineering team, com completing the design optimization. Then you have the secondary stage, which is the next tranche of funding, which is the structural engineering to get the prototype on the ramp ready to go. And then the third phase, which is the most expensive phase and going to be the best part of half a million, uh, half a billion dollars, effectively 500 million, to do the full certification of the aircraft and flight testing. Now, we hope that's gonna be a lot less. We're looking at the new revision of part 23 regulations and we believe that by the time that comes around in 2024 to 26, that that should be a much cheaper process than it is today. However, we assume the worst case scenario. We basically build toward a half a billion certification cost 
with a contingency fund at the end of that as well, that should it run over for whatever reason, you've got that budget available. And then you've basically got your aircraft, your first 60 aircraft are already financed, ready to go out the production line. And the time frame you mentioned 2030 for, for, for the, the 300. So basically the prototype should be up and flying, ready for flight in 2024, end of so, 2024. So that would be a first flight for that's first flight. 2024. Okay. Yep. And then we're looking for certification in 2026. Mm -hmm. So a two-year certification window, hopefully all going well, uh, with first production aircraft being deployed out in 2026. Mm -hmm. uh, that will then roll out at roughly a 60 aircraft per year production rate in 26, 27, 28, 29. Mm -hmm. And you plan to produce them in, in the UK? UK initially. Um, we are also into talks. Uh, basically, the way that we're going to manufacture the aircraft is a little bit different. Uh, we have quite an interesting model in terms of how we're going to do this because, again, you cannot build a sustainable aircraft if your manufacturing processes are not sustainable as well. Sure. So we have to look at how we do manufacturing. Now, with AI, with automation, with new technologies available in the manufacturing process, the days of the old production line are long gone. We're looking at a far more interesting model right now. And whatever we create in that model, which I can't reveal in full detail yet, but that will basically be a package solution that we can simply pick up, drop into another country, and that same model will work as a, a production unit in that country. So we will have regional hubs for production in the future. You mentioned the 300 target. That's um, the first, first yeah. portfolio. I was about to ask, I mean, is it 300, the, <laughs> the whole, like, the... Um, no. The, the, the whole package, or you are already uh, planning even longer term where oh, this absolutely. can be more? Absolutely. I mean, if yeah. you look at the where you deploy 300 aircraft across the world, mm -hmm. that doesn't even put a drop into the market opportunity of what you're touching. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a huge put. But what it does, it seeds our network. It gives us that base from which we will then expand our business. And we can move from those network hubs. We can increase the number of aircraft in country. We can increase the number of networks being flown. Uh, and it gives us a huge amount of growth. So, but even if we produce 300 aircraft in that first tranche, interestingly, that puts a seventh on the all-time commercial aircraft production list of the UK. So if we even just do that first portfolio, we're doing quite well. Yeah. Of course, our target is to become the largest commercial aircraft manufacturer the, aircraft the UK has ever produced. So. Mm -hmm. That we need to beat 1,200 aircraft to get that record. 1,200, pretty impressive. And just a little detail that I just found in your presentation. You mentioned in, in one of the videos that the aircraft has a parachute for safety. No, that was, that was an earlier version. So basically in the oh, early yeah. aircraft. So we basically have gone through three iterations of the aircraft. Mm -hmm. We had the initial design concept, which was a smaller variant. Now, when we first started, we were looking at a six to eight seat airplane. And what we were doing is, that would be the first step to the 18-seat airplane. Now, basically, we've instead of going down that path first and then going to the 18-seat, we've decided to shortcut and go straight through to the 18-seat airplane. So in our first early years, the idea was to build a 6 to 8-seat airplane. That aircraft would have had a ballistic parachute capability, but for the size of aircraft that we're doing now, no, absolutely not. You wouldn't have parachutes on board an aircraft of this size. Hmm. And we don't need it. We have the redundancy of the battery uh, backup we have the fact that we've got a flight profile characteristic, which means we can drop into a field. We can land on all surfaces. The aircraft doesn't stall. Um, these are all characteristics, which mean that we have got one of the safest flight platforms out there. Or so we hope. 
what if the technology keeps evolving? Well, I mean, I, I guess it's going to continue evolving over these few years. Um, how flexible is your design to accommodate this? So there, uh, there, is some, there is something that people are now suddenly just realizing about what we're proposing and why we've done it. It was imperative for us to get the electric motors into the back end now. We were looking at a parallel hybrid system where we would have used a turboprop and an electric motor hybrid configuration. But in order to, if the technology's improved and changed, we'd have an awful lot more we'd have to change on the airplane. So it made a lot more sense to go serial hybrid, where the airframe is certified, the electric motors at the back and the prop fans all certified. The turbo generator is the bit that we will swap out in the future. So as and when technology allows, be it hydrogen fuel cell or battery or ammonia fuel cell or any other technology that's yet to come, Soon as that technology is available and is man enough to do the job, and I say man or woman enough, uh, powerful enough to do the job, um, to basically power the electric motors, the rest of the aircraft doesn't change. Why is that important? It's Im important because rather than doing a whole new aircraft for customers, they can simply have an STC modification, granted that an STC is not a simple process, but it's a simpler process than giving them a whole new aircraft. You can basically swap out their turbine generator for something else. That technology fight will be apparent over the next five years. We're going to see which pushes forward. A lot of people are talking about hydrogen right now. That's great, but that requires a huge amount of infrastructure development and costs in order to deliver that. And there are many, many questions as to how green hydrogen truly is. Uh, there are a lot of people that claim that it's, it's perfectly green. When you look at how the hydrogen's produced, a lot of hydrogen is not as green as it looks. Equally, battery technology. Battery technology requires a huge amount of infrastructure to be able to put in the fast charge networks, the ability to put out electrical fires and battery fire, etc. Is that going to change? Yes, I believe it is. Are we going to look at a situation where we have new technology, new battery technology that has much better power density, probably through a new architecture, potentially through a completely new invention, in terms of battery technology, I think that's gonna come. In which case, that's what we'll use. Our aircraft doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Our aircraft is still the same core aircraft with the same electric motors and the same architecture. How you generate the power is the bit that you will simply swap out. So therefore you have longevity in your asset. Very, very interesting. Um, just one last question to wrap it up. Um, you name your company Faraday after the, the British scientist, right? Correct. Yeah, and what was interesting is I found out just last, was it last year or the year before? Um, I took a trip down memory lane and I went to my old father's factory in Andover where he used to produce the UAVs. Uh, and it was great to see the factory still there. Uh, another company's using it now, but it's still there. As I drove out, there's a smaller little miniature uh, business industrial estate that's opposite of smaller units. They're just like single garage units. And it was called the Faraday Business Park. Now, I don't know whether as a youngster that name then stuck into my head without me even realizing in subconscious. But yes, it is named after Michael Faraday. Um, he is uh, one of our past engineers of great repute. And it seemed to make an awful lot of sense to have honor of his name and his work and his capability in our name. Hence why we created Faraday as the, uh, the brand we wanted to move forward with. Great naming. And with this historical note, I think we can leave it here for today. But I'm sure... There are going to be more interesting news coming out of uh, Duxford. You're based in Duxford. Right? Duxford Airfield, yep. That is where we're based. That's where the prototyping is going to be, and the first manufacturing base should be at Duxford. 
Um, and yeah, we have a very exciting journey ahead. The fact that we're creating more jobs, the fact that we're uh, basically reinvigorating the British aircraft manufacturing market, which is huge. We haven't touched that for a long, long time. And it's a great shame that we ever lost it. But also, this is a, a global position. This is something where we're now talking to companies and global suppliers and investors where they can see the opportunity that we see our market as global. This isn't just a UK market or a UK play or European play. This is an opportunity where we can go and put these aircraft into a global environment. And therefore, we have an awful lot of partners from overseas, as you're seeing, that are working with us now in helping us to realize that ambition and that vision. Mm -hmm. For people that want to know more, your website is faradair.com. F-A-R-A-D-A-I-R.com. Perfect. Okay, thank you so much, Neil. It's been a real pleasure learning about Faradair and uh, all the best. Hopefully, we'll be flying in 2024. We'll yeah. see the prototype in 24, and we'll see that. And so, in the launch event, you'd be delighted to. I'd be delighted to have you come along to that. That would be great. Uh, and then, hopefully, production flights starting to fly out from about 2026. So, my absolute okay. pleasure to talk to you. It's an exciting time for this sector, and we can start to look at how we recover the aviation sector out of the dark times of 2020 in the COVID crisis. Perfect. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Right. You take care. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you're using, or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much, and see you soon. Yeah.